Thank you, Kevin. I'm going to set my clock. Have you bought a packed lunch today? <laughs> Just joking. Okay, if you'd like to turn to Psalm 84. going to read through it and then we'll pray. Psalm 84. To the chief musician on an instrument of gath, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Let's pray. Father, we pray your blessing on your word as we uh, delve into these uh, truths today, these spiritual truths uh, written through the Psalms. is for our exhortation, our edification, to draw our minds upwards. May you speak through me, Lord, as as I read and just teach, really, your word. It's, it's, it's about you, Father. It's about Jesus, the Holy Spirit. It's all about you. It's always been about you. It will always be about you. So I pray you may speak to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to open to you, uh, first of all, some important points regarding the way the psalmist refers to God. Okay, and I haven't actually caught all the teachings of the previous guys, so I apologize. I'm getting through them. Um, so if I duplicate anything... I don't know that I'm doing it. So the passage opens and starts with this phrase, Lord of hosts. Other translations such as the Christian Standard Bible, which I like to use, renders it Lord of armies, which I actually prefer. Today is being taught from the, the New King James translation, which uses Lord of hosts. Both translations refer to God as Yahweh Sabaoth. And Haley loves this. It could also be rendered as Lord Almighty. But what does this mean? What does it tell us? Why is it used here? It is not by accident. Well, we can get a bit of insight from another very popular story in the Old Testament, which can be found in 1 Samuel 17.45. You don't need to turn there. You'll know it. This is probably one of the, well most, uh, the well, most well-known Old Testament Bible stories of all time. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword, with spear, and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
we all know how the story ends. As the Lord of armies delivers Goliath into the hands of David, he takes his head from his body, having struck him with one of five smooth stones, fitting that it is used here when the armies of Israel were up against the armies of the Philistines. The battle belongs to the Lord of armies. This name is one of the most widely used names for God in the Old Testament, apparently been used almost 300 times. I haven't checked that, as you can check that after the service if you want. Lord of hosts or Lord God of hosts is mentioned four times in this psalm. Verse 1, verse 3, verse 8, verse 12. So it must be pretty important. Well, let's break it down a little further. Lord, that's L-O-R-D in capital letters, refers to Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. This was the Hebrew name revealed to Moses. It consisted of the four consonants, Yod, He, War, and He, otherwise known as the Tetragrammaton. It means the God who was, who is, and forever will be, and refers to his divine nature. No one other than God himself could make this claim. As a side note, does this remind anyone here of another phrase that he used of Jesus in the New Testament? The one who is, who was, and is to come. Otherwise, you could refer to him as the I am. Revelation speaks of Jesus in this way. And you can turn to Revelation 1, 4 through 8. Revelation 1, 4 through 8. We're going to be dotting around a little bit in the scriptures. You won't have to turn to all of them, but uh, keep your thumb in the psalm. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even though who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. No, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 1.1 states, The book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our God and the Lord Jesus is the one who is and who was and who is to come. Why do I mention this here? Well, because you'll sometimes hear people, even professing Christians, as I did recently, state that nowhere in the Bible does Jesus claim to be God. This is one of the stupidest statements someone can make of Jesus. And they clearly have not properly read nor correctly interpreted the meaning of the Holy Scriptures, as demonstrated in the language God uses here of himself. And so back to the use of YHWH. The consonants were formerly used as the name was held with such high reverence so that they would not speak it aloud nor write it in full. There is a sense today, in my view, in which we have lost this deep reverence for the name of God, our God. Let's now turn our attention to the second part of the name, Sabaoth. The transliteration of the Hebrew word Sabaoth means hosts or armies. In the Septuagint, the Hebrew word is rendered by Almighty. The full name used here, Yahweh Sabaoth, declares God's reign over heaven and earth, 
over all armies, both those on earth and those in the spiritual, or we might say the heavenly places. So we are to have here a high view of God, as you might remember Ethan Berthew preaching some time ago. The psalm can be broadly broken down into three key sections for those Bereans of you taking notes today. One, the psalmist delight in the Lord, verses one through four. Two, the psalmist strength in the Lord, verses five through eight. And three, the psalmist trust in the Lord, verses nine through 12. But before we get into breaking things down today, I want to read to you something from the treasury of David. Uh, By way of introduction during my studies, there seemed to be, to me, no more fitting a way to introduce the wonder of this particular psalm than to read a portion from the treasury of David by Charles Spurgeon. It refers to the title and subject of the psalm. To the chief musician upon Gittith, a psalm for the sons of Korah, this psalm well deserved to be committed to the noblest of the sons of song. No music could be too sweet for its theme or too exquisite in sound to match the beauty of its language. Sweeter than the joy of the winepress, for that is said to be the meaning of the word rendered upon Gittith, is the joy of the holy assemblies of the Lord's house. Not even the favoured children of grace, who are like the sons of Korah, can have a richer subject for song than Zion's sacred festivals. It matters little when this psalm is written, or by whom. For our part, it exhales to us a Davidic perfume It smells of the mountain heather and the lone places of the wilderness, where King David must have often lodged during his many wars. This sacred ode is one of the choicest of the collection. I had no idea when I picked it. I just picked the date. It has a mild radiance about it, entitling it to be called the Pearl of Psalms. If the 23rd be the most popular, the 103rd the most joyful, the 119th, the most deeply experimental, the 51st, the most plaintive, this is one of the most sweet of the Psalms of peace. Pilgrimages to the tabernacle were a great feature of Jewish life. In our own country, pilgrimages to the shrine of Thomas of Canterbury and Our Lady of Walsingham were so general as to affect the entire population, caused the formation of roads the erection and maintenance of hostelries, and the creation of a special literature. This may help us to understand the influence of pilgrimage upon the ancient Israelites. Families journeyed together, making bands which grew at each halting place. They camped in sunny glades, sang in unison along the roads, toiled together over the hill and through the slough, and as they went along, stored up happy memories which would never be forgotten. One who was debarred the holy company of the pilgrims and the devout worship of the congregation would find in this psalm fit expression for his mournful spirit. Uh, Spurgeon has such a beautiful way with words, and I thought this would bless you today to hear such sweet words for the praise of this psalm. Uh, When reading this psalm, something that struck me is how often God referred to himself in various ways in just 12 verses. Verse 1, O Lord of hosts. Verse 2, courts of the Lord and living God. Verse 3, your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Verse 5, strength is in you. Verse 7, God in Zion. Verse 8, Lord God of hosts and God of Jacob. Verse 9, O God, behold our shield 
and your anointed. Verse 10, your courts and house of my God. Get the theme? Verse 11, Lord God is a sun and shield. Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold. Verse 12, Lord of hosts, trust in you. I take this to really emphasize that the Lord is to be the focus of our hearts and minds. The Bible is a book that is about Jesus, but we learn much of who he is through paying close attention to the names of God that are used. Another thing I want you to notice is the use of the word blessed. It is mentioned three times, once in each section of the psalm. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, verse 4. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage, verse 5. Blessed is the man who trusts in you, verse 12. What is important here is not so much the blessing, though that is wonderful as we would discover today, but the one through whom and in whom we are blessed, namely God. So having had an overview of what I think are some key points, let's delve into the text together and discover some wonderful truths from this psalm. So back to verse 1. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts? Well, how lovely is the tabernacle? Quite simply, it does not tell us, but because it could not express it. We see this inability to fully express in word elsewhere in the scriptures. You can turn to 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9 for me. It's 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through, salva- through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honour and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory receiving the end of your faith the salvation of your souls the tabernacle or temple of the lord was so wonderful so as to impact the mind the heart the eyes indeed the whole soul the tabernacle was the place of worship this is the place that believer truly belongs uh, belongs and longs for the place of worship and communion with the lord spurgeon speaks of it this way He loved the house of God because he loved the God of the house. His heart and flesh cried out, not for the altar and the candlestick, but for his God. Over the years, I have discovered and come to realize the place my soul is most content, the place my whole being longs for, is the place of worship of the Lord as we did today. Now, do not misunderstand me here. Every aspect of our lives as believers is meant to be in praise and worship to the Lord. But there is something that is so special, so mysterious, a place of awe as the saints gather together and with one voice, one mind and one spirit pours out our sweet songs of praise to the only one who is worthy of our praise. The only one who is able to satisfy the deep longings of our hearts for communion with our God, our King and our Saviour. 
Remember, the tabernacle was the place where God dwelt with his people. Kevin recently did a wonderful job in revealing to us the design and workings of the tabernacle, which was designed according to a heavenly pattern and the true reality in the spiritual world. Keep in mind the previous teachings of Kevin we have had with regards to the tabernacle, which was in the midst of the camp as the Israelites journeyed through the wilderness. Uh, The army of Israelites would look to the tent of their king in reverence and awe, and the psalmist here is unable to express his appreciation of every aspect of the workings of the tabernacle or temple, with its outer and inner courts, the curtains and cords, the sacred services that were performed as instructed by the Lord himself. I want to remind you today that we have access to the king of kings at any time of day or night. Let us take full advantage of this access that was made available by the blood of the Lamb. That's why we took communion today. Remembering that the veil was torn from top to bottom and the way made available. Jesus having destroyed the wall of separation between God and man on the cross. Verse 2. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. The psalmist had a deep and insatiable longing for the courts of the Lord. His words signify his whole being, body and soul cried out. Bear in mind the psalmist was unable to go to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the three annual feasts. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And once they finally entered the promised land, the three annual feasts continued. The psalm would bring consolation to anyone not afforded the ability to attend one of the feasts. Such a feast in Jerusalem was the appointed place of worship of the Lord. But he did not only long to be in the place of worship, he longed for the person of worship, God himself. His heart and flesh cried out for who? For the living God. That is who. God is not dead. Our world likes to act as if he is dead. I've had people in the past literally tell me God is dead. There have been a few films based on the statement, God's not dead. And it's a good thing he's not. Setting aside for a minute the impossibility of this ridiculous statement, what do the scriptures say? You can turn to Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. God, who at various times and in various ways, who spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If God were dead, we could not even speak it. We would all disappear in an instant. As C.S. Lewis once said, nonsense remains nonsense even when we talk it about God. Colossians 1.16, and can turn there if you like. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things, not some, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. No, God is most certainly not dead. You can be sure that this world would wish that he were. How do we know that? Because they murdered him on a cross. Besides the creation declaring him, we know that the grave is empty. 
In the person of Jesus Christ, God conquered sin and conquered death. And Jesus is alive and he can die no more. What did he say on the cross? It is finished. We serve the living God and the psalmist knew it. Verse 3. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord, uh, your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. The psalmist here envied the sparrows that found a home in the temple court near to the altar of God. Sparrows would freely come and go, feeding on the crumbs that would be left. And here the psalmist expresses his desire to be in their place, freely coming and going in the house of the Lord. He envied the swallows that were able to nest in the priestly precincts. Moreover, these swallows were able to raise their young there. Is this not a beautiful picture of the believer today, able to bring our children freely into the house of God? Are we not gathered together with our children, bringing them into the presence of God as we worship him in spirit and in truth? Do we fully grasp this wonderful privilege today? Well, the psalmist knew it, and he saw the beauty of it. Then comes this repeated phrase again, O Lord of hosts, with greater emphasis on him as my king and my God. Do you see here the personal emphasis? His God is not the king of another, or indeed the God of another. Rather, this Lord of hosts is his king and his God. Is this not the same for us today, believer? Can we not collectively claim Jesus as our king and our God, but perhaps sweeter still, individually as my king and my God? I ask you today, are you able to speak in such a way when you pray to him? Do you come to him knowing him to be the king of kings and God over all other gods, for there is none but the one true king and God? Does God sit on the throne of your hearts? Do you allow him to rule and reign there as is reasonably right? Has he not purchased you by his blood, by the blood of the lamb? Does he not have double rights to you, having made you and furthermore bought you at a price, that high price of the innocent blood of Jesus Christ? Verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Here the psalmist refers to the blessing of the priests who had their residence in the house of God. They had the blessing of occupying rooms there and were daily about the work of attending to the work and worship of the Lord. While men might not have done this perfectly in heart and fervor, surely here we see a glimpse of the heavenly things to come. We will one day dwell in his presence where we will be like Jesus, spotless and clothed in his righteousness. 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. Again, turn there if you're you're quick enough. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness, Roxy talked about today, into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And in Revelation 21, 3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. What a wonderful hope we have. 
Verse 5, blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. Here we see the blessing upon those that truly worship the Lord with all their heart. The blessing is upon the man that desires the Lord. The man whose strength is in the Lord. This blessedness the psalmist speaks of comes to those that love the Lord. The psalmist desired to go to the temple in Jerusalem for the feast with the saints to worship the Lord. And whilst he could not go, he knew the blessing of it from times past. We should not think this blessing is afforded to the half-hearted worshipper. Spurgeon again speaks of it uh, in this way, of such an individual that is. The blessedness of sacred worship belongs not to half-hearted, listless worshippers, but to those who throw all their energies into it. Neither prayer nor praise, nor the hearing of the word will be pleasant or profitable to persons who have left their hearts behind them. A company of pilgrims who had left their hearts at home would be no better than a caravan of carcasses, quite unfit to blend with living saints in adoring the living God. John, in writing to the lukewarm church, Revelation 3, again turn there if you're quick enough, 14 to 16, states the following. It's Revelation 3, 14 to 16. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. The believer that wants to be strengthened in the Lord should have his heart set on the Lord. He must have God's word and his ways stored up within him. The man who has his word written on his heart will be equipped to walk in his ways and thus be strengthened in the Lord. But what does it mean to be a pilgrim? Well, Warren Wiersbe puts it in this beautiful way. A vagabond has no home. A fugitive is running from home. A stranger is away from home. A pilgrim, as you should be today, is heading home. The psalmist understood that he was a pilgrim both in his previous journeys to tabernacle feasts and moreover in the truer sense of desiring a heavenly home. Hebrews eleven sixteen. We've been in Hebrews a bit today, Kevin, you'd be pleased. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Believer, this fallen world is not our home. We are pilgrims passing through. We are sojourners heading home. Verse 6. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. I like the way the New Living Translation renders it. When they walk through the valley of weeping, it will become a place of refreshing springs. The autumn rains will clothe it with blessings. So often we see passages like this that seem to be a bit of a mystery until we dig deeper. What does it mean to pass through the valley of Baca? We've had a clue in the, in the Living Translation. 
There is nowhere in the scriptures that identifies a literal site by this name. Though there is some speculation it may have been a literal place located near Jerusalem. Baca is a Hebrew word meaning balsam tree. The word Baca spelt B-A-C-A is related to Baca spelt B-A-K-A-H which means to weep. The tree is one that drips resin or gum-like tears. They tend to be found in dry, arid regions, so you should get this picture of despair and desperation. Here the psalmist uses this phrase in a symbolic way, indicating those difficult and painful places we can often find ourselves in this life. Perhaps today you're in such a season of life. Well, be encouraged. With the text immediately following this phrase, where it states they make it a spring The rain covers it with pools. We do not expect to stay in this valley of tears, but to pass through it. God, having used this season to accomplish things in your life, he otherwise could not. We receive a blessing in and through the experience and come into times of refreshing. The pilgrim is to walk one step at a time in constant communion with the Lord in prayer and worship, through song, the reading of his word, and in fellowship with the saints along the way. Jesus said in the following in Matthew 6.34, you'll know it. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This use of they in the text seems to refer to many pilgrims journeying together. If you will imagine, as the pilgrim makes his journey, the road at times is desolate and dry. But as saints would gather around a well, they find refreshment along the way. And together, they are encouraged on their journey. That is the picture that is painted here. The saints are to refresh one another along the way as we walk in the way of faith. We walk one step at a time, one day at a time. Verse 7. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. The refreshment enjoyed along the way for the pilgrim with the saints goes from strength to strength. Typically, when taking a journey, things get more tiresome. Fatigue sets in and it becomes difficult to press on. But here the psalmist notes this pilgrimage to be one that goes from strength to strength. As we walk humbly with our Lord, as it states in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. As the pilgrim draws ever closer to his final destination, his strength increases. Is this not so with us here today? Whilst the way of the Christian can be fraught with trials and tribulations, are we not being transformed daily and our strength and hope in Christ deepened? Do we not surely go from strength to strength through the transforming power of God as he conforms us into the image of his son? Isaiah 40, 31. Again, turn there. Isaiah 40, 31. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That is the picture here. What does this phrase appears before God in Zion mean? Well, Zion here is the final destination. Zion was the city of God. 
Spurgeon speaks of it in this way. This was the end of the pilgrim's march, the centre where all met, the delight of all hearts. Not merely to be in the assembly, but to appear before God was the object of each devout Israelite. Would to God it were the sincere desire of all who in these days mingle in our religious gatherings. Unless we realise the presence of God, we have done nothing. The mere gathering together is nothing worth. I want you to note the use of the words each one. Each one appears before God. We must all appear before God, not according to the faith or journeying of another, for we will one day stand alone before our God. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The believer stands before him in Christ free from the guilt of shame and sin. But make no mistake, we shall all stand individually before him. Verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. We see this repeated phrase, Lord God of hosts, again. The psalmist cries out to God. He is here wrestling with being unable to go to the feast with the saints of the house of God. And in his desperation, he pleads with the Lord to be heard. He still seeks the Lord in the knowledge that he's still able to receive a blessing from him. We see here, repeat for the Lord to hear him in the words, hear my prayers and again, give ear. This should serve as a reminder to us today that God hears the prayers of the saints. 1 Peter 3.12 For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Our God is a God who hears. This cannot be said of other gods. Psalm 115, 3 to 8. Again, turn there if you like, just a few pages over. 115, 3 to 8. This is beautiful, this. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Do they, they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. Whilst the psalmist could not gather with the saints at the house of the Lord, yet he knew he had the ear of God. There is in his prayer the knowledge of God, not only as the Lord Almighty, in this repeated phrase, Lord of hosts, but also as the God of Jacob. The God is stated in the treasury of David, who is infinite in mercy and goodness to his people. Verse 9. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. We see here a prayer for the king. A shield is a symbol used for the Lord and for Israel's anointed king. Psalm 3, 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. Genesis 15, 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Again, Psalm 115, 9 to 11. 
O Israel, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. The prayer seems to be twofold in meaning as it is a prayer specifically for the king and more importantly for the Messiah to come. Remember, King Jesus was prophesied as coming through the line of David. It could also be taken as referring to a literal shield, uh, which was Israel's primary defense or means of defense. And the psalmist is perhaps asking God to behold how Israel defended itself. Look upon the face of your anointed is a reference to the king of Israel who was anointed by God for the office of king. This would firstly be speaking of King David, though it could plausibly be King Solomon. Additionally, again, looks forward to the Messiah who would be the one true king and holy anointed one of God. How beautiful it is for the Lord to look upon those whom he loves. It reminds me of the priestly blessing in Numbers 6, 22 to 27. You'll all know it. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. Verse 10, stick with me. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. A little background context is appropriate to note. The opening words of this psalm assign it to the sons of Korah. These were Levites given the responsibility of guarding the threshold of the sanctuary. This was an important and honourable office. First Chronicles 9.19 Shalom, the son of Kor, the son of Abiasaph, the son of Korah, and his brethren from his father's house, the Korahites, were in charge of the work of the service, gatekeepers of the tabernacle. Their fathers had been keepers of the entrance to the camp of the Lord. The word gatekeeper used here is not the same word as doorkeeper used in verse 10 of the psalm. The psalmist was happy to sit at the threshold of the temple simply to be close to the Lord. By the time of David, the sons of Korah served in musical aspects of temple worship. Second Chronicles 20.19 Then the Levites of the children of the Korahite, uh, Korathites and the children of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. It is interesting to note that Korah was the leader of a rebellion against Moses during the Exodus, uh, during the wanderings in the wilderness, and God severely judged him and the leaders that rebelled with him. Numbers 26, it's Numbers 26, 9 to 11, the sons of Eliab were Nemuel, Dathan, and Abiram. These are the Dathan and Abiram, representatives of the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah. When they contended against the Lord and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah when that company died. When the fire devoured 250 men and they became a sign. Nevertheless, the children of Korah did not die. It's especially interesting to me here that the children of Korah did not suffer judgment. Exodus 34, 6 to 8. 
And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Note here, the iniquity of the fathers is visited upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation of the guilty, but mercy to the thousands. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So back to the verse in question. The psalmist in this verse is again expressing his longing for the house of God. He simply states that time spent in the house of God is better than much time spent anywhere else. Spurgeon speaks of it this way. The lowest station in connection with the Lord's house is better than the highest position among the godless. Only to wait at his threshold and peep within so as to see Jesus is bliss. To bear burdens and open doors for the Lord is more honour than to reign among the wicked. Every man has his choice and this is ours. God's worst is better than the devil's best. Adam Clark, a British Methodist theologian, writes, who now prefers the worship of God to genteel, gay, honourable and noble company, to mirthful feasts, public entertainments, the stage, the oratorio or the ball. Reader, wouldest thou rather be in the closet wrestling in prayer or reading the scriptures on thy knees than be at any of the above places? Do you, believer, love to be in the house of God, whereby, whereby we can enter his presence together more than all the pleasures this world has to offer? You should if you number yourself among the saints. Verse 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. What does the sun represent here? Well, the sun is the source of light and life, as we can see today. It gives light for us to see, and without it, life could not exist. See how the plants grow towards the sun. What a beautiful picture of our total dependence on the real source of light and life, the Lord himself. Remember, all things were made by him, through him, and for him. What does the shield represent here? Well, we've covered this in part already. God is our shield. Without the protection of him, we would be exposed to much danger in this life. Spurgeon speaks of it in this way. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. Pilgrims need both, as the weather may be, for the cold would smite them were it not for the sun. And foes are apt to waylay the sacred caravan and would happily destroy it if it were without a shield. Heavenly pilgrims are not left uncomforted or unprotected. The pilgrim nation found both sun and shield in that fiery cloud a fiery cloudy pillar, which was the symbol of Jehovah's presence. And the Christian still finds both light and shelter in the Lord his God. A sun for happy days and a shield for dangerous ones. A sun above and a shield around. A light to show the way and a shield to ward off its perils. Blessed are those who journey with such a convoy. 
The sunny and shady side of life are alike happy to them. The Lord will give grace and glory. Well, grace is essential for the believer, for without it we could not stand. Grace is simply getting what you don't deserve. The pilgrim is in much need of grace for the journey through life, and it comes from the hands of a good God. The end of this life will be glory, as we will see shortly in Romans, which I'll do, Romans 8, we'll do right at the end, uh, after we've done a, a worship song, which will be fitting end for this sermon. But before we get there, I want to quote something I read not so long ago in a book in my hand by Jeffrey D. Johnson titled The Pursuit of Glory. Something I've been going through and it just fit. It's titled Not Earthly Glory. If I asked many of you today, I think you'd probably struggle. I could be wrong to if I ask you what does glory mean to you, you'd probably struggle to to voice that back to me. Well, this is great. I do not mean fame if that is what you were thinking about. It is true that we often we are often deceived into looking for glory and becoming famous. Notoriety, however, has never brought any lasting satisfaction. Famous people are miserable too. They, along with each of us, have holes in their hearts that cannot be filled by mass numbers of Twitter followers. This hole inside our hearts, that empty spot that longs to be filled, seeks for something far greater than being a celebrity. Deep down, we long for true glory. We long for the highest glory, the glory of glories, a glory that cannot be surpassed by earthly accolades and unadulterated glory. Being made in the image of God, we can never be satisfied with the counterfeit glory that is manufactured from the things of this world. Even the atheist Bertrand Russell understood that people can never be satisfied with the glory of this world. Man differs from other animals in one very important respect, and that is that he has some desires which are, so to speak, infinite, which can never be fully gratified, and which would keep him restless even in paradise. The only glory that can satisfy our deepest longings is not obtained at favourite department stores or at the Audi dealership, Reese. <laughs> Just joking. This glory is not found in throwing the game-winning pass in the Super Bowl, Kevin, or being elected president of the United States, any of you. Health, wealth and power are all alluring. But deep down, we all know that our hearts aspire for something that transcends these things. The glory we seek does not fade away. It is not empty or vain. Rather, true glory consists of something eternal, something weightier than things that perish. Consider the Hebrew word for glory, fascinating here. Kabaud means heaviness. Though this may seem like a strange way of defining glory, we must remember that the value of ancient coins was determined by their weight, their heaviness. Today a nickel is heavier than a dime, yet this was not the case when coins were made from previous metals. When you're trading with coins forged from bronze, silver and gold, then the larger and heavier the coin is, the better. The greater the weight, the greater the value. Thus the glory and value of something is in its weight or substance. The biblical contrast to glory is vanity. 
Vanity speaks of something having little to no substance. It speaks of that which is light, empty or worthless. We may grasp the wind, but even if we were able to lay hold of it, what do we have? Nothing. There is no value in having a fist full of air. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. We're nearing the end. James 1.17, every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Romans 8.32, and I'm firing with the scriptures today, guys. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? How true this is. But note there is a qualifier to this statement. From those who walk uprightly. Let not the backslider or wayward in heart think to lay claim on such a promise. First Peter two fifteen to 17 For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice. But as bondservants of God, honour all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the king. God will give us the very things we have need of for the journey. He does not give us everything we want, for he knows what is good for us. Better than we think we know. I am thankful today for those times in life when God, in his wisdom, did not give me the things I thought I needed. Verse 12. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. We see again this beautiful phrase repeated, Lord of hosts, as the psalmist closes, or again, as I prefer, Lord of armies. The key to this psalm is found here at the end. The pilgrim's journey is one of faith and trust in the Lord. Hebrews 11.6, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I challenge you today, saints, in the threefold importance of this message. Number one, is your delight in the Lord? Number two, is your strength in the Lord? And number three, is your trust in the Lord? Let's close. Father, I give thanks today uh, for your, your word that is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, is our delight in you today. I pray it is, Father, for everyone in this room. Is our strength in you today. I pray it for everyone again in this room. And is our trust in the Lord. Lord, we do trust you. We love you. We declare your goodness, your kindness, your mercy, your grace. And may we find grace to help in time of need as we continue as pilgrims passing through this world, which is not our home, to that heavenly city that awaits us, where one day we will be with you in glory. And when we see you, we will be like you, for we shall see you as you truly are. Amen.